0: Well, this is the church that says, you know, if we want to be like the culture, if we want to love the culture, well, then we just have to redeem it and make it Christian. We just have to spend all of our energy fighting legal battles so that Christians get special privileges. We just have to vote for the right leaders who will be the Christian leaders, and then America won't have the problems they have. We just have to expend all of our energy trying to fix what's wrong.
1: Hi, this is Chris from The Point, a church where you can come as you are and you can text in your questions. You may not be sure what you believe about God, Jesus, faith, or the Bible, and that's okay because faith is not about having it all figured out and God is not waiting for you to put your life together before He'll connect with you. If you'd like to find out more about The Point, You can visit our website at thepointknox.com or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at The Point Knox. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy
0: for you to connect with God where you are. My math is correct. We have 16 days. 16 long and exhausting days until you won't see another political ad for at least a month. Are you excited? 16 days until this country decides who we think should lead us? Are you scared? See, it's okay to be both, to be uncertain of what the future may hold and to be scared of what it might look like and to be excited for the possibilities and to think that maybe we're going to choose the right leaders or the wrong leaders or all hosts of possibilities. Sometimes we think that the church should look exactly the same in what we think about politics and how we vote and who we vote for but I don't believe that's necessarily the case. In fact, I think the Bible gives us a lot of freedom to explore how do we as Christians relate to this world? How do we understand the world around us and our role in this world in a way that honors God and our faith, but also recognizes this world is really complex and sometimes confusing? How do we as Christians live in the kingdom of God, as Jesus described, and in the kingdom of this world. Before God and before man, how do we act in such a way that this world sees Jesus? Today we're gonna to look at specifically how the church connects with and relates to the culture around us. And if that rings some bells, you're like I'm kind of confused. What are those words even mean in connection? Well, let me just clarify What is the purpose of the church right next to all the rest of the world? And how do we as the people of God live this tension of being in the world and yet maybe we're supposed to be different? Well, to begin, I wanna look at something from Jesus. This is most often the place people turn to and quote when they describe how Jesus and politics relate. But I have to start with this clarifier Jesus' answer here to this question he's asked has very little to do with how we relate to politics, at least not on the surface. See, in Matthew chapter 2, or 22, what we're going to look at today, some of the religious leaders are really, really mad at Jesus. They have their own agenda, their desire to prove that he's doing something wrong, their desire to find a reason to come against him, their desire to cause pain and harm to him and anybody who follows him, they have their own agenda. And they come to Jesus with a series of three questions to try to force their agenda. Have you ever met somebody like that? It doesn't matter what you're talking about or what you're doing. They just have an agenda they want to steer the conversation back towards. They have some way they want to convince you or twist the words you say to be something different. They want to manipulate that their agenda is what proceeds. Jesus, he lays out a pretty good way that you and I could maybe respond to that situation. Here it is in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 15. The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Herodians were people who followed Herod, who believed Herod was a good king, the right king. And they often caused problems for Jewish people because a lot of Orthodox Jewish people, really traditional uh, Jewish people, people who followed that faith and lived in those ways of life, they struggled because the Herodians often proposed and did things completely opposite of what they believed God called them to do. And yet here, these religious leaders In order to try to trap Jesus, they partner with who otherwise might have been their enemy. And they go together to Jesus and they say this, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. They begin with some flattery. Oh, we know how great you are and how wonderful you are. and We know that you don't really give a rip what anybody thinks. You'll just do what you want and say what you want which was exactly why they were mad at him. Here's this question in verse 17. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You see, for the Jewish man... To pay taxes to Caesar separate from the taxes you paid to the temple was to admit that Caesar was actually your king and your leader and to admit that in some capacity he had authority over you. But this is really hard for Jewish people. Because they thought only God should be their one who rules them. Only a Jewish person should sit on the throne. Only a Jewish person should be the one who can make these decisions. Somebody who agreed with them and honored their God and did it their way. So for Jesus to say, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, would offend all the Jewish people who were listening. But if Jesus said no... If he answers their questions and say, don't worry about paying taxes to Caesar. Caesar's not a real king. He's not actually the leader. He's not the one in control. He doesn't honor God. Just honor God and trust God. Don't worry about Caesar. Well, then all the Herodians would have a claim to say to Caesar and to the government leaders, this Jesus is inciting a revolt. He thinks people shouldn't submit to you, shouldn't honor you, shouldn't follow you. So no matter how Jesus answers this question, it's a trap. He's doomed. If he answers yes or no, he's going to be in trouble. Most of the time when people come with their own agenda, there is no right answer. Because no matter what you say in response to somebody with their own agenda, you will be wrong. It's a trap. Jesus, he, in his brilliance, does this. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarii, which was about a day's wage, one day's work. Pretty common money everybody had. Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar. See, the money itself had Caesar's face on it. And not only this, it also had an inscription that would pay uh, honor to Caesar as king. And in some cases, even as God, as a deity. Here's this coin that has money, or this coin that has the face of the government on it and claims to be the words of God, the, the thing that's honoring God. So, well, Caesar's face is on it. So then Jesus without answering their question, completely sidesteps it altogether and avoids it. When you find yourself trapped by somebody who has their own agenda, you don't have to engage in their questions. You can control the terms and say, I will not go there. That's acceptable. He responds, he says, well then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. This first of the three traps here in Matthew, Jesus answers really simply, well, if Caesar's face is on it, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, give to man what be- or to God what belongs to God. Now, throughout history, in many cases, this has been used as the primary reason to say, well, what is the relationship between the church and the government, right? What is God's and what is Caesar's? How do we know what we should give to the government and what we should give to God? How do we draw that line? Now that's something we can and should and will here in a moment look at in response to this. But we have to first recognize that's not why Jesus responded this way. You see, the real trap of the matter is we know throughout scripture that everything is God's. In fact, in Proverbs, or sorry, in Psalm 50, it says this, it says, the, uh, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, it goes on to so say, they are mine too. Everything belongs to God. The very ground you walk on, the air you breathe, the money in your pocket, whether it was made by man or not, everything is his. Amen. See, we can be tempted when we think about the two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. We can be tempted to think, well, God is in charge of one and then he just leaves us in charge of the other. That's not the way it works. What Jesus is saying here to these Jewish people is give to Caesar what's Caesar's. And the irony is nothing is Caesar's. It all belongs to God. And yet at the same time, he doesn't say that it's bad to give to Caesar what this world describes as belonging to Caesar. So how do we relate to the world it's okay to sidestep traps. It's okay to sidestep agendas. And yet Jesus says we should give to Caesar what is his, even as Jesus himself knew that everything is God's. So what do we do with this? There's a book, a really popular book, called Christ and Culture. This was written, I think, in the 70s, maybe earlier. Uh, well, look, it's his 50th anniversary, so at least the 70s, right? Right. Um, But this book, Christ and Culture, it it unpacks how has the church historically viewed the relationship between Caesar and God? How has the church historically understood what does it mean to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar? And he gives five different categories of the way in which the church has thought in the past about this relationship that I think are really helpful for us as we process how do we understand the world we live in? And how do we live in it well? So the first way the church has taken Jesus' words here and in other places to give unto Caesar what belongs to him is to say that the church actually stands against the culture. Now, to understand this, we have to first think, what is culture? In his book, he describes culture as every contribution of man, every work of man to this world. So culture can be things from the way in which we live, the buildings that we build, the roads that we make. It can even be things that, you know, our ideas that we believe, the the religion we hold to, the practices that we uh, practice on a regular basis, right? Like our Saturday ritual of joining in a stadium and watching a team play terribly. And somehow every week we think it'll be different. We've got this set of practices that we live by. This is culture everything man does in this world. So this first way that uh, people view the way that the church relates to culture is that we don't. Culture is inherently evil. Everything about man is twisted and warped by sin and there's nothing good that comes from man. And because everything about culture is inherently evil, we actually have to push against it and say no to all of it. In really mild ways, we see this in churches where they say, you can watch movies, but don't watch any movies that are PG-13. That's just too much sin in those movies. Or you you can drink, but only drink things that have less than 3% alcohol. All All these rules we set up like, well, let's be so different from that culture that we're other. We're against them in every way. You can listen to rock music as long as it's Christian rock music. What does that even mean? Because most of the time, the lyrics don't sound anything different than what I'd hear Taylor Swift sing. It's just now played on a station that says, praise God at the end of it. We have this idea sometimes that the church shouldn't be anything like the world. If you want to take it to its most extreme uh, stance, this would be the idea of the world is so bad, we have to retreat away from it like the Amish or the Mennonites, right? We have to be totally separate from that world and not a part of it. We can't participate in politics or vote because you know our government is evil and if we vote, we're contributing to the evil of this world. This is one way in which uh, the church has historically read Jesus' words and chosen to live. Now this can be really good and healthy, right? Like there's some really evil stuff out there that I hope my kids never see. You don't have to spend more than a couple of minutes on the internet with the wrong search words to see images you can't ever unsee that I hope my kids don't ever experience. It's certainly good at times to say there are parts of culture we should be totally against. That's that's not good. And we have to separate ourselves however possible. But the downside to this view of of the church being against the culture is we fundamentally have to create an enemy in everything in the world around us. We have to find a common enemy, somebody we can aim our hatred and our mistrust and our disdain for and say they are the problem. As long as we keep ourselves holy, it'll be okay. And it becomes really hard with this view to live a life consistently trying to love your neighbor or consistently trying to reach your neighbor and connect them with the love of Jesus because you can't be a part of that circle of sin. You have to be separate. Just in case you didn't catch this, I don't think this is the healthiest way the church should live and think. So there's another perspective. This one here that Christ actually transforms the culture. So we should, as Christians, recognize that we provide to the world the very hope the world needs. Because Christ has made us new and he's restoring us, we then go into the world and we have to restore what is broken in this world. It's our job to fix what man has made messy. What does this idea look like? Well, this is the church that says, you know, if we want to be like the culture, if we want to love the culture, well, then we just have to redeem it and make it Christian. We just have to spend all of our energy fighting legal battles so that Christians get special privileges. We just have to vote for the right leaders who will be the Christian leaders and then America won't have the problems they have. We just have to expend all of our energy trying to fix what's wrong. Anybody know somebody who's a fixer? Like you ever been in a relationship with somebody and you're like, I'm having a really rough day. And they're like, you know, it's probably because you went to bed too late last night. Thank you. I'm really tired today. Well, it's probably because you didn't drink enough coffee. Here, have some more. I mean, first off, that's always good. But wouldn't it really annoy you if every time you had a problem, every time something wasn't good, someone's like, well, I can fix it, I've got the answer. Well, you just need to try harder, pray more, do this, do that, right? If you were friends with that person who always tried to fix you, you would quickly not like that person. See, the truth is, if we as the church exist to transform and change everything about the world, what we're fundamentally saying is nothing you do is worth anything Unless you do it the way we think you should. Nothing you do, nothing that exists outside of us is good in any capacity unless we deem it worthy. It's pretty condescending and it can be really challenging because what happens when the church seemingly fails at transforming the culture? What happens when we do all of our hard work and we vote for all of the right people and nothing changes? then what? Christ against culture. Christ transforms culture. But there's another one. Christ above culture. This view looks at Scripture and sees the church as fundamentally inherently better than the rest of the world and given the authority by Jesus through his death and resurrection, we can simply declare what is true and how we want people to live, and what we think the world should be like, and it doesn't matter if you question or disagree or have any kind of doubts, what the church says is, and you have to submit to it. You ever experience this kind of church? We have the answers. It's not our job to fix the world. It's our job just to tell the world what is and is not, and you have to deal with it. If you've ever been part of a Roman Catholic church, this is the view that they collectively, not all individually, but collectively hold, right? The Pope is this person in authority who can speak and declare and everybody else simply has to do as he says and follow suit. And so when the Pope declares on behalf of the Catholic church something to be moral or immoral, every Catholic around the world has to submit and agree, they have to contribute to, well, that's, that's who we are. That's what we do. And not only this, for the, the Catholic church, part of the reason the church throughout history has been so painful is having this model of the church is simply above the world in every way. The church was able to make decisions that were really harmful. Have you heard of the Crusades? Or the Spanish Inquisition? Moments where the church thought their authority was so great they could do whatever they pleased on the world around them with no consequence in the name of Jesus. Surely we don't have churches today believing they can do whatever they want with no consequence, right? Christ against culture, Christ transforming and changing culture, Christ above culture. Then we get to this next one Christ of culture. What this says is that God has redeemed man, and he's put his spirit in us. We were made in his image, and because we're made in his image and Jesus has redeemed us, we actually can see the good in the world apart from Jesus. We don't need Jesus to see good in other people. And so as long as you're a pretty good person or a pretty good church or a pretty good culture or a pretty good community, that's good enough. Oftentimes, churches that hold this stance, they elevate the role of doing good works as the primary purpose of the church. And I don't just mean doing good works like feeding the hungry, I mean doing good works like fighting for social justice and change. And you'll hear phrases like this used in churches that hold this perspective. Things like, don't you want to be on the right side of history? All right, as long as we're the ones leading the way, bringing the change, we're the ones celebrating the good that is happening around us, even if that good may not actually be good according to Scripture, well, that's fine because everything that we think or perceive as good, everything the culture defines as good, must be good. And the challenge with this view is that we sometimes get so wrapped up in becoming the justice we're pursuing We get so wrapped up in being the cutting-edge, leading progressive, the one who's the first to say, there's a problem, let's work towards healing, that we forget to hold to what is true and what is good. All of these have strengths and challenges. But I think that this fifth category is actually where Jesus would want us to stand. This fifth way the church has viewed the world And culture around us is not that we have to be against it and say it's all terrible. No, we can do good things with the culture. It's not that the culture is inherently wonderful and we just need to do whatever the culture says. That's not so good either. Now I believe that we live with Christ and culture in paradox. Paradox would be two fundamentally true things that seem opposite and yet simultaneously are both true. The world and the church should live not at odds hating each other, but in tension. Two very different kingdoms that sometimes don't look the same, but both ultimately are submitted to the same king. Both are ultimately submitted to the same judge. Even if right now things don't look the way we think they should. And if the right leader doesn't get elected, and even if the laws don't change to reflect what we think is good, and even if the world's culture celebrates all kinds of behavior that is really terrible, even then, these two worlds collide in tension, side by side. What does this practically look like? Well, let's turn to John chapter 17. Jesus, as he's preparing to die the night that he's betrayed, he goes off and he prays this really long prayer. And he prays something really incredible. He says this, beginning in verse 13. But now I am coming to you, that is I'm coming to the Father, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. See, Jesus' prayer right before he dies, as he prays for his disciples, the very people he spent all this time with, is, God, I pray that you would not take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. I don't want you to remove them from all that is messy and broken and ugly. I don't want you to separate them. I don't want them to be the ones who have to fix everything. No, I want them to be in the world, but not of it to be a part of this community and this culture and this life we live in, and yet somehow separate and different. He goes on, Sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. For their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, Jesus' prayer for his disciples was his prayer for you and me, that we would all be in him, connected to his truth, to his love, to his source of strength and hope and peace and joy that no matter what happens in this world, no matter how much they hate us, we would have him. And in having him, we would have one another. And we could love. The cool thing for me is that he doesn't just say, I've placed them in the world. No, I've sent them into the world. You see, you and I, it's not enough to just live side by side the world and act like the world doesn't matter. It'll all go to hell. Who cares? Let it burn. No, we're to live in the world, to be a part of it, to care deeply about the life of this world and the people in this world who need the hope of Jesus. And we're actually ones who are sent to this world with a purpose, to love our neighbor and to be examples of Jesus today. Do you know the word Christian literally means little Christ? If you are a Christian, you exist in this world for the purpose of being Christ to those who don't yet know him. So as we approach these last 16 days of voting these last 16 days of political ads that are ugly and exhausting to watch, as the world is filled with turmoil and chaos and confusion and anxiety and fear and stress and all of this stuff, let us place our hope in the promise that the world is inherently not our enemy, but rather our mission field, the very people God has sent us to to love and serve and care for. And let us go over these next 16 days not worrying about whether or not the world does what we want or looks like we want or votes for the right leaders or chooses the right laws or does what we think is good. Let us just do that and be those very people who are Christ to those who are hurting and scared and broken and alone. Let's live in this tension of knowing God is God. We are not. It'll be okay. Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you. You have sent your Son and given us your word. We thank you that you have sent your Son, that he would send us to live not against the world and not needing to fix the world and not believing everything is good and not believing we are inherently better. But believing that you are God, that you have given your son to make the whole world new, and we can live today in the promise that our job is not to fix what is broken, but to love who you love, to serve whom you have served. God, may we see our neighbor not as a means to an end, but as a person deserving your love. May we live in this world, but not be of it, May we stand apart like a city on a hill, like a light shining bright. May we be different because of you. God, I pray that through these next 16 days, as people ponder who to vote for, as they decide with the best of their ability what's good for this country and this community, God, I pray that they would experience through your children love, joy, peace and patience, kindness and goodness. God, that they would experience through your people the freedom that comes from knowing you are God. It'll be okay. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. I actually received a phone call earlier this week, speaking of questions, texted in. Somebody said, hey, I've got a question for you. I said, okay. And she was debating with her daughter if it was too early to start listening to Christmas music. So yeah that's the answer yeah yeah specifically if it's like santa and jingle bells and all that stuff definitely wait please if it's about jesus i mean i've got some flexibility there so this is the part of the service where we respond to your questions that you texted in and uh, emily's gonna do her best to really put me on the backpedaling i was
2: like i'm not answering them okay um there are three questions uh which one would you like easy or hard first
0: Let's start with the hard.
2: Okay. As a young person who has only participated in one election, have Christians in the past been as divided and angry towards each other about who our leader should be?
0: Um, you did start with a hard one. I, I, Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you for warning me. Uh, <laughs> I, there's one little word in there that I think makes this a difficult question, and it's the word As. Have they been divided? Yes. In fact, that's why scripture is like, look, church, stop fighting, stop being divided, be unified. Division's not new, but it's never good. Have they been as divided? I wasn't around for most of them, so I don't know. But what I do know is we live in a culture today that has instantaneous access to any information. And our instantaneous access to any information means that we think we're in the know about everything when we really know very little about a lot of things. And as a result, we're easily able to form opinions about stuff that we don't necessarily have all the details on. We're able to form opinions that can kind of get stuck in these little vortexes of our own thought bubble and we just get further and further and deeper into that thought. And and so I think some of our habits today are certainly unhealthy enough that we might be more divided than we've ever been before. Um, at the same time, we know the answer to division is not proving somebody right or wrong on Facebook. The answer to division is drawing closer to Jesus together. So we have the same opportunity to be less divided, but we might quite possibly be more divided.
2: Awesome, not, that's
0: not, not awesome. Not awesome, but.
2: Okay, oh, um, the next question is actually about uh, carpooling, finding rides to church. Cool. not I mean, I don't know how do we address that right now. Besides, if you are someone who is willing to kind of be on that kind of team,
0: yeah, there's a need for that sometimes. We don't formally have a team for carpooling, uh, largely because if we formally had a team, we'd have to formally have insurance covering that. <laughs> uh, I don't want to pay for that. Secret team. So, uh, unofficially... Uh, for the sake of insurance, if you want to help and serve and bring somebody to church, that'd be wonderful. Maybe they're your neighbor. Maybe there's somebody else from the point who needs a ride. I can connect you with them and let you guys figure out the details. So that way, we don't have to have insurance. Yeah.
2: Last question: Do we need to bring anything to the bonfire? Chairs, drinks, etc.
0: Great. Uh, yeah, bring bring your own drinks. Uh, bring your own chairs. We'll have a few lawn chairs, but not a lot. Uh, We're still in the process of finding and ordering the furniture we'll have out there long term. So if you have lawn chairs, that'll be ideal. And most importantly, the thing to bring would be a friend, a neighbor, somebody else who you just want to spend the night hanging out with and burning stuff with. All right.
2: Excellent. Those are all the questions today.
0: Cool. If you have questions, you can continue to text them in. That number's online all week long at thepointknocks.com. We'll either respond to them later in the week on Wednesday night for our point leftovers or next Sunday morning, we'll respond as best as we can. Uh, So nothing else, no announcements, we're good? good. Cool, well then receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Amen. Amen. Have a good week.
1: Thank you for listening to one of our Sunday morning messages. If this message has made an impact in your life, please let us know. Simply fill out the Contact Us page on thepointknox.com. And if you'd like to be a part of supporting the Point Ministry, simply go to thepointknox.com forward slash support. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.